welcome back to the next episode of Kill Some Time. I believe this is episode five. I hope everyone likes the additional episode last week, and I may try to squeeze another one in this week. I finally got my shirt in, and I will be posting it on my social media on Monday for you guys to finally see it, and for you guys to finally see what it looks like, and I hope you guys like it. And if so, I will definitely be putting in orders for you guys as well, so I can have some to ship out to you guys. This week was also <laughs> very stressful for me, so I hope you guys at least had a fantastic week. Please support me on my social media accounts. It is so important, and it helps Let's Kill Some Time on suggested pages, thanks to algorithms and stuff like that. So please, 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 please post about Let's Kill Some Time and tell your friends and family. If you guys can, follow me on Twitter and Instagram. That is Let's LKST Podcast. Facebook is Let's Kill Some Time Podcast. Patreon is Let's Kill Some Time. And Anchor is Let's Kill Some Time. So that is anchor.fm slash Let's Kill Some Time and patreon.com slash Let's Kill Some Time. You can also find me on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, or anywhere you just like to enjoy your podcasts. But if you, get, if you can show your support on my Patreon and or Anchor, I would definitely appreciate it. Because without y'all, this wouldn't be possible by any means. But hey, let's kill some time together, shall we? Our true, true crime story this week is about Dean Coral. Dean Coral was known as the Candyman. Dean was born on December 24th, 1939 in Indiana. So this Christmas Eve baby definitely was not a gift to the world. Despite the fact his birthday seemed like he would have been. Arnold Edwin Quarrel and Mary Robinson are the name of his parents. His parents argued on a constant basis at home. They divorced when Dean was young and they remarried after World War II. Dean's father was not a good influence. He would punish Dean for the smallest things. The parents separated for a second time, leaving him in the hands of numerous sitters while his mom worked to provide for the family. Rheumatic fever left Dean with a heart condition, which led to him being frequently absent from school, and he seemed to welcome the change when his mother remarried, moving the family to Abilene, Texas. After the move, Dean had a part-time business making candy under the name Pecan Price. It soon expanded to become the family's livelihood, and Dean was generous with samples as he sought to win new friends. In 1964, despite his heart condition, Dean was drafted into military service, and this is when he first displayed the first signs of him being homosexual. When Dean turned 30 in December of 1969, he seemed to undergo a sudden change in personality, becoming hypersensitive and glum. He had begun to spend time with teenage boys, two examples being David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley. Together, the three of them would pass out free candy, and they hosted glue and paint sniffing parties at his Pasadena apartment. While doing this, he also proved to have a sadistic streak in him. He liked to pursue bondage with underage boys and young adult men. Brooks even moved in with Dean for a little while. He also joined Coral on, a regular, on regular trips he took to South Texas beaches in the company of various youths and was also given motorcycle rides by Coral and allowed to ride the bike himself. Whenever Brooks told Coral he was in need of cash, he was given plenty of money. One time around 1970, Brooks entered the apartment to find Dean completely naked. Dean had two boys naked strapped 
to a homemade torture rack. With Dean embarrassed, he released his playmates and offered Brooks a car, a green Chevy Corvette to be exact, in return for his promise of keeping quiet. Later, as his passion turned to bloodlust, Dean would use Brooks and Henley as assistants, offering $200 per head for fresh victims. But the two guys allegedly received very little payment, so some question is, there is some people that question if they made this up for the eventual trial, or if it actually even took place. Um, the date of the Candyman's first murder is kind of uncertain. They, Brooks places it on September 25th, 1970, but there's some stipulation to that, but that's the date we're going with. September 25th, 1970, the victim identified as University of Texas student Jeffrey Conan was picked up while hitchhiking to his parents' house in Houston. Eventually, it seemed the two accomplices were tired of only supplying the victims, and they wanted to join in on the fun. Most of Dean's victims were drawn from a sketchy Houston neighborhood known as the Heights. The victims would then be allowed to drink themselves unconscious. Dean would t then tie them up, molest, and or rape them, then kill them. The victims were killed by strangulation or shooting with a .22 caliber pistol. The bodies were disposed of in two different spots, a remote spot near the Sam Rayburn Reservoir or a rented boat shed in southwest Houston. In several instances, Dean forced his victims to phone a right to their parents with explanations for their absences in an effort to ease the parents' fears for their son's safety. Coral is also known to have retained keepsakes, usually keys, from his victims. The disappearances were hugely ignored by police who were accustomed to dealing with runaways. Two were friends and neighbors of Henley, delivered directly to Dean, and sometimes the Candyman killed two victims at once. On December 15, 1970, he murdered 14-year-old James Glass and 15-year-old David Yates in one sitting. The boys were acquaintances of Brooks who had previously visited Coral's apartment. Both youths were tied to opposite sides of Dean's torture board and subsequently raped, strangled, and buried in a boat shed Coral had rented on November 17th. The next month, on January 30th, 1971, brothers Donald and Jerry Waldrop joined the others onto the missing persons list. They were walking to the bowling alley when Dean encountered them. Both boys were enticed into Coral's van and were driven to an apartment that Coral had moved into a 3200 Magnum Road, where they were raped, tortured, and strangled before Brooks and Coral buried them in the boat shed. Between March and May of 1971, Coral killed three more boys the ages of 13 and 16. Between the ages of 13 and 16. Wally Simino and Richard Embry were slaughtered next in October 1972. Another pair of brothers, Billy and Mike Balch, were killed at separate times, one being in May 1972 and the other July 1973. Dean's youngest known victim was a nine-year-old neighbor residing across the street from his apartment. So, in summary, the victims were, and I'm going to do this by year, the first year is 1970, so September 25th, Jeffrey Conan, 18, a student at the University of Texas abducted while hitchhiking from Austin to the Brazewood Place District of Houston. He was trying to get to his parents' house. He was buried at High Island Beach. December 15th, Danny Yates, 14. Lured with his friend James Glass from an evangelical rally by David Brooks to Coral's Yorktown apartment. December 15th is James Glass, 
He's 14 as well, an acquaintance of Coral who also knew David Brooks. He and his friend were strangled before being buried in Coral's boat shed. The next year is 1971. On January 30th, Donald Waldrop, 15, vanished on his way to visit a bowling alley. According to Brooks, Donald's father, who was a builder, was working on the apartment next to Coral's at the time that Donald and his brother were murdered. January 30th, Jerry Waldrop, 13, the youngest of Coral's victims, so they say, like I said, there is a nine-year-old, but with nine-year-olds, you cannot say who they are, apparently, even though these are minors as well, I'm not sure how that worked, but he did kill a nine-year-old, so this is actually like the second youngest victim, um, but the youngest of Coral's victims the supposed youngest of Coral's victims, he and his brother were strangled and buried in Coral's boat shed. March 9th, Randall Harvey, 15, disappeared on his way home from his job as a gas station attendant. He was shot in the head and buried in Coral's boat shed. Remains were identified October 2008, all those years later. May 29th, 20 days later, David Hilligeist, 13, one of Henley's earliest childhood friends, he was last seen alongside his friend Mally Winkle climbing into a white van. May 29th, Gregory Mally Winkle, 16, David's brother, is a former employee of Coral Candy Company, which is what Pecan Price eventually became known as, and boyfriend of Randall Harvey's sister. He disappeared on his way to visit a local swimming pool. August 17th, Reuben Watson, he is 17 left his home to visit the cinema on the afternoon of August 17th. Watson later called his mother to tell her he was spending the evening with Brooks. He was gagged, strangled, and buried in Coral's boat shed. The year is now 1972. February 9th, Willard Rusty Branch Jr., 17, the son of a Houston police officer whose father died of a heart attack in the search for him. Branch was castrated before he was shot and buried in Coral's boat shed. Remains identified July 1985. March 24th, Frank Aguri, 18, Aguri had been engaged to marry Rhonda Williams, whose, present in Coral, whose presence in Coral's house sparked the fatal confrontation. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, he was strangled and buried at High Island Beach. April 20th, Mark Scott, it was 17 years old, a friend of both Henley and Brooks, who was killed at Coral's Schuler Street address. According to Henley, Scott was strangled and buried at High Island, although his remains have yet to be found to this day. May 21st, Johnny DeLone was age 16. A Heights youth who was last seen with his friend walking to a local store. He was shot in the head, then strangled by Henley. May 21st, Billy Balch, 17. A former employee of Coral Candy Company, Balch was strangled by Henley and buried at High Island Beach. July 20th, Stephen Sickman, was 17 years old. Sickman was last seen leaving a party held in the Heights. He suffered several fractured ribs right before he was strangled with a nylon cord and buried in the boat shed. His remains were identified April 2011. October 3rd, Wally J. Simino was age 14. He was abducted while walking to Hamilton Junior High School. Simino attempted to call his mother at Coral's residence before the phone was disconnected. He was strangled and buried in Coral's boat shed. October 3rd, Richard Hembry was age 13. He was last seen alongside his friends in a white van parked outside a Heights grocery store. 
He was shot in the mouth and strangled at Coral's Westcott Towers address. November 12th, Richard Kepner was age 19. He vanished on his way to call his fiancée from a payphone. He was strangled and buried at High Island Beach. His remains were identified September 1983. Now we're on to the year 1973. February 1st, Joseph Lyles, age 17, an acquaintance of Coral who lived on the same street as Brooks. He was seen by Brooks to be grabbed by Coral at Wirt Road and was subsequently buried at Jefferson County Beach. June 4th, Billy Ray Lawrence, age 15, a friend of Henley who phoned his father to ask if he could go fishing with some friends. He was kept alive by Coral for four days before he was killed and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. June 15th, Ray Blackburn, age 20, a married man from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was vanished while hitchhiking from the Heights to see his newborn child. He was strangled at Coral's Lamar Drive residence and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. July 7th, Homer Garcia was age 15. He met Henley while both youths were enrolled at a Bel Air driving school. He was shot in the head and chest and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. July 12th, John Sellers was age 17. An orange youth killed two days before his 18th birthday. Sellers was shot in the chest and buried at High Island Beach. He was the only victim to be buried fully clothed. July 19th, Michael Tony Balch, 15. Coral had killed his older brother, Billy, of the previous year. He was strangled and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. July 25th, Marty Jones, age 18. Jones was lasting along with his friends and flatmate or roommate, Charles Cobble, walking towards Coral's apartment in the company of Henley. July 25th, Charles Carey Cobble, 17, a school friend of Henley whose wife was pregnant at the time of his murder. His body, shot twice in the head, was found in the boat shed. August 3rd, James Dramala, age 13, the son of seven-day Adventists. Dramala was last seen riding his bike in South Houston. He was last, he last called his parents to tell them he was at a party across town. Again, he also killed a nine-year-old neighbor. There were more victims, authorities would later find out, um, but there were, at the very least, 27 victims who died by the, the Candyman. Dean had no real problems from authorities. He had a steady supply of victims coming to his house for torture, and he had two good buddies that seemed to, ready to do anything for him. But as with everything in life, it was bound to go sour. On August 8th, 1973, a tearful phone call from Elmer Henley summoned Pasadena police officers to Dean's apartment at 8.24 a.m. The authorities found the Candyman dead, six bullet holes in his shoulder and back, with Henley claiming he had killed his friend in self-defense. So, Dean Quarrel did officially die on August 8th. The violence had exploded after Henley brought a girl named Rhonda Williams, who was 15, to one of Quarrel's paint-sniffing orgy parties. She was a runaway, and Henley thought it would be okay if she stayed for the night. This whole situation drove this homosexual killer into just a fit of rage. He was like, why would you bring her here when you know that she was not welcomed? Following a heavy sniffing session, Rhonda, Henley, and another one of their friends named Timothy Kirkley all passed out. Dean decided it was time to teach Henley a lesson for his cluelessness. He tried, he tied all of these kids up. When Henley woke up, he begged for his life and told Dean he would assist in the murder of Rhonda and Timothy. When Henley 
with Henley playing for his life, Dean untied Henley and ordered him to begin raping Rhonda. But with all of the excitement going on, it must have gotten to poor Elmer Wayne Henley because he just couldn't perform, if you know what I mean. This led to Dean making fun of Henley. Dean had threatened Elmer with a gun, then taunted his young friend when Henley managed to disarm him. While frightened for his life, Henley insisted that he shoot Dean only to save himself. Or he shot Dean only to save himself. But there was definitely more to this story. That same afternoon, Henley led detectives to a rented boat shed in southwest Houston, leaving authorities to discover 17 victims at the bottom of the Earth's floor, all allegedly being the Candyman's victims. A drive to Lake Sam Rayburn turned up four more deceased victims, while six others were found on the beach at High Island for a total of 27 victims dead. The body of Jeffrey Conan was found on August 10, 1973. The body was buried at High Island Beach. Forensic scientists stated that the youth had died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation and a cloth gag which had been placed in his mouth. The body was found buried beneath a layer of lime, wrapped in plastic, naked, and bound hand and foot, suggesting he had also been violated. Henley insisted there were at least two more bodies in the boat shed, plus an additional two more at High Island. But the authorities called off the search. They were content to know that they had broken California's record in the Huang Corona case by two victims. While in custody, Brooks and Henley both confessed to their roles in procuring victims for Dean throughout the years, with Brooks pointing directly at Henley as the trigger man in at least one slaying, Quote, most of the killings that occurred after Wayne came into the picture involved all three of us, he told police. Quote, Wayne, seen, Wayne seemed to enjoy causing pain, unquote. The boys tried to plead their innocence, saying they were forced to help Dean with these unjust murders. Convicted of multiple murders in August 1974, Henley was sentenced to life imprisonment, with Brooks being sentenced to an identical term in March 1975. A year later, Houston authorities announced that recent investigations of child pornography had linked other local pedophiles with Dean's murder ring, but no prosecutions were forthcoming. Elmer Henley's conviction was overturned on appeal in December 1978 based on the issue of pretrial publicity, but he was convicted and sentenced a second time in June 1979. And just a couple fun facts real quick. Dean's mother believes there were many more victims than the 27 that were found. In The Man with the Candy, author Jock, Jack Olson suggested that other victims might possibly be buried around Dean's old candy shop, but authorities show no interest in pursuing the case any further than they already have. Parents constantly tried to get with authorities about the whereabouts of their missing children, but it didn't spark the police to continue the search. They were completely uninterested in the case at this point. David Owen Brooks was 65 when he died in a Galveston prison hospital on May 28, 2020. So just a couple months ago, guys. Two weeks after he had been hospitalized with symptoms consistent with the illness caused by COVID-19. COVID-19 took out David Brooks. This was according to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice website. He also suffered from a numerous number of pre-existing conditions, but he did test positive for the virus and preliminary, preliminary results from the autopsy definitely show it was the main factor of his cause of death. So that is the story of Dean Coral, aka the Candyman. So Dean 
Dean ended his killing when his henchmen killed him. And it's just a wild ride. Like, this whole thing. Like, apparently this man right here is why so many parents to this day say, you know, don't trust people who ask you if you want candy. Don't trust people if they offer you drugs, this, that, and the other. So you can thank Dean Quarrel for the reason why we cannot or should not, should not take candy and other items from strangers. So there is that fun fact for this case. But now let's move on to our paranormal story for the week. I wanted to do the story of the black-eyed children. I don't know if you guys have ever heard about this, but if not, let's, let's get to it. So these children do not look threatening at first. They might knock on your door late at night. You may see them approaching your car while you are waiting for the light to change or even at a gas station. It might seem like these kids need help or they might just stand still for absolutely no reason at all. They will want to get in your house or your car. They will be persistent with you. Then, something off will be highlighted about these children. They have completely black eyes. No white sclera to be found on the eye at all. Just pure darkness. These are what people know as the black-eyed children. These children resemble kids that are aged between 6 and 16. These creatures with pale skin and completely black eyes have reportedly been seen hitchhiking, panhandling, or at the doorsteps of residential homes. <sighs> That's my dog. They're outside right now. They get let in in like 30 minutes, so ignore that. <laughs> um, they know that too. Anyways, um, besides blacked out eyes, these children typically seem to appear normal. Sometimes their wardrobe seems a little outdated though. In extremely unusual instances, people have reportedly encountered creatures with talon-like feet. And some people even believe these might be hybrids of the gray aliens, which I will have a show on that at some point, if you guys don't know about the greys, um, trying to slowly take over the planet of Earth. Some experts believe they are children of the devil himself, and if you let them into your home or car, you are allowing the devil to enter your life. They want to enter your home to call their parents. However, once you make eye contact, it seems like there is a much more sinister plot to this story. Some people claim that these children have, ex have existed since the 1980s. However, most people say that the legend originated back in 1996 in post written by a Texas reporter named Brian Bethel, where he wrote about two alleged encounters with the black-eyed children. Brian said that he encountered two children in Abilene, Texas, with pale skin and black eyes. In 2012, Bethel retold his story on the TV show Monsters and Mysteries. He then wrote an article for the Abilene Reporter News for the Abilene Reporter News, where he described his experience once again. The story is, Brian had stopped in a parking lot near a movie theater to write a check in his car. He was so concentrated while doing this that he didn't even notice the two young boys approach his car. He didn't notice them at all until the older boy tapped the driver's side window. Brian rolled down his car window and immediately felt a soul-wracking fear, though he couldn't understand quite why. The older boy said that he and his brother wanted to catch a movie but had forgotten their money at home and they asked if Brian could give them a ride so they can go get the money. They assured him that it wouldn't take them long but they were just two kids and they didn't have a gun on them. 
Bevel found the assurances unsettling and realized that the last showing of the film they wanted to see had already started playing and would be nearly over by the time he could drive them anywhere and get back. In his retelling of the incident, Brian stated that when he broke eye contact with the children, his fear became all-encompassing, and it wasn't until they broke eye contact that their eyes became completely blacked out. The older of the two boys began to get frustrated when Brian made excuses for not giving them a ride and said that they couldn't get into the car unless Brian specifically said it was okay. After that, Brian tore out of the parking lot quickly and he noticed they tried to chase after him, but ultimately they never caught up. To this day, he still stands by his story. And there is another one of the stories and it goes a little something like this. In the snowy town within the middle of nowhere of Vermont, an elderly couple heard the sound of three loud knocks on their door. They opened the door and saw two young children, a boy and a girl. Quote, parents will be here soon. May we come in? The children did not make eye contact and just stood there in the doorway. The elderly couple was definitely hesitant, but after a few minutes, they let the boy and the girl inside so they can call their parents. The kids settled on the couch while the wife made some hot cocoa and the husband asked them questions that went unanswered. The wife returned and noticed that her cat was scared to death and angry with these children. May we please use the restroom, they asked. The wife looked at the kids and she finally saw them. The children's eyes were as black as a starless sky. She directed them to the bathroom and returned to her husband who was covering his face with his hand. Did you see their eyes? The husband then shows her his hand just full of blood. That was caused by a nosebleed. The power suddenly went out and the house turned as dark as the kids' eyes were. The wife started to head to the restroom and then was confronted by a voice from the kids at the end of the hall. And they were saying, our parents are here. The kids then left the house, leaving the door wide open. The wife noticed that there were two men at the end of their driveway and they were very tall and slender, and it's kind of like the gray aliens from um, one of those, it's from a movie, I can't remember what movie it is, but we all know the like really skinny aliens that you see in movies. So the t men were tall and slender like that. The wife waved to them, but they did not receive the same friendly gesture from the men. The two men and children then drove away together in a single car. The power then came back on after a little bit after the kids left. Throughout the next week, weird things definitely happened in the house. Three out of the four cats went missing and the fourth had been found dead in a pool of its own blood. The husband continued to have nosebleeds and finally went to the doctor where he was diagnosed with a terribly aggressive skin cancer. Nowadays, people still claim to see the black-eyed children when driving late at night down an empty road or outside of their window late at night, or even lurking in the shadows of their room. Many people have reported seeing the black-eyed children standing in the corner of their room during their episodes of sleep paralysis, or even just waking up in the middle of the night because they just thought they just swore someone was watching them, and lo and behold, it'd be the black-eyed children. So... That is the quick story of the Black Eyed Children. 
some people think it's a hoax. Some people think that Brian made it up for publicity. And, you know, because you really didn't hear much about these kids until Brian was like, hey, this happened to me. And then all of a sudden, just the stories about these kids just blew up. You know, along with it came many different conspiracies about aliens and whatnot. So it it definitely led to a lot of stories. And some people even think it's very similar to a creepy pasta that was found on the internet. So we don't know if it's hoax, legend, if it is real, if it is supernatural, if it is extraterrestrial. We don't really know. But I just thought the story was super interesting, especially if they are a hybrid of the greys and humans to take over the planet Earth, because that is a very, very common conspiracy. And like I said, I'm going to be doing an episode on aliens here very soon. So keep your ears open for that. But yeah, so those were the stories of Dean Coral, the Candyman, and the evil-esque black-eyed children. Um, if you guys enjoyed it, please like, share, support me. My social media accounts are, again, my Twitter and Instagram have the same handle. It's LKST Podcast. My Facebook is facebook.com slash let's kill some time podcast. My Patreon is patreon.com slash let's kill some time. My um, email, my email is let's kill some time 2020 at gmail.com. I want to add in my email because I really want to get listener stories from you guys. I would love to kick off listener stories, but I have to have a certain number of entries to do that. So I just need a couple more and I'll have a decent length episode for you guys to do that. Just need a couple more guys. Come on. I know you can do it. Um, but also just if you can show your support, if anything, on my anchor, that is anchor.fm slash let's kill some time. And because of anchor... That is why you can hear this podcast on so many other podcast sites like Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and just whatever you want to listen to your podcast on. My anchor is the reason why that is possible. But you guys have a great night, a great day, whatever time it is for you. Hope you guys are doing okay due to the pandemic. I hope none of you are having any poor health. I hope you guys are all staying healthy and safe. But I will see you guys next week, possibly sooner, if I have a surprise episode for you guys. Um, and Monday, I will post my shirt for you guys. So, have a great night, guys, and have fun killing some time throughout the week.